we even have time for Q&A. That's great. We have Monin over here. Monin? Okay. And then there's a question. We have a question down here in the middle aisle towards the end. And when you ask a question, just brief name and affiliation and then the question mark. Hi. Um, thanks for the speeches. Um, very cool. Very interesting. Um, I'm Max. Um, and I just wanted to ask Kyle, um, just for the last one, with regards to Ethereum, you just mentioned already uh, the energy consumption going to be reduced highly. And I was just wondering, you didn't really mention it, is it then still a problem? Like when it's uh, decreased that amount, it seems to be solved. It sounds like it seems to be solved with regards to the energy issue. Yeah, I think the energy use of Ethereum will be solved in a month. Um, I think the historical debt is still a big question, and that's what I'd like to focus on. We have kind of the same question for the climate broadly. There's a lot of changes that are being made right now, but we still have 200 years of emissions in the atmosphere that we have to deal with that are still actively influencing our planet negatively. So, um, yes, it will be solved. When, they, when you see a number like 99.9% .9 reductions, I believe that's accurate. Okay, I'll just also say to you, if you at any point someone gets a question, you can just jump in and answer, otherwise we just continue. I think there was someone down here and then up there afterwards, but for, up there, okay. You are, you are she knows. Hi, I'm Sorrel. I actually work in a DAO. Uh, so there's a platform called Color Studios, which is a music showcasing platform, and they've kind of been thinking about the next phase of that and gone into community and also fused that with Web3. and. So I, within this DAO, I've been working for six months and the project has existed for about a year and I've been thinking a lot about kind of the sizes at which these groups exist and kind of like what is a good size for a DAO when it gets too much, um, kind of splitting things into sub-DAOs. So maybe Penny, for you, just a question from your experience um, of what you think kind of these cycles look like in regards to size and also in regards to maybe phases where you have a lot of activity and contribution, then phases where you maybe slow down a bit and regroup again. So yeah, those have been kind of things on my mind as I've been tracking the changes and seeing uh, different things there. Yeah, I mean, I think this is also super important, especially, well, within actually any kind of community technology would be the scalability and how many you know, how many people are inside that room? And this is not a new problem in terms of emergent technologies. We also have these, like, within commune systems, uh, plenum, I'm based in Berlin, so the plenum is like the historical fatigue syndrome. Um, what I think is really important is, maybe I didn't explain it so much, but it's this idea of microgridding. So that means instead of trying to have one DAO that encompasses absolutely everything and is in this kind of constant overflow of information, and it's not even possible to understand when those periods are that you spoke of, of voting and so forth, I would say that smaller communities that are connected to each other, maybe biannually, triannually, works really well. That can also be translocally as well, so not um, offering kind of interoperability for a universal system, but also noting the infinite differences between localities and thinking very much about the notion that one size does not fit all. And what I would say is that probably what you need 
to do in terms of how big that group is, is constantly question that. You know, create space to speak about that. You know, are you humanly, socially, emotionally feeling overwhelmed by the capacity that you have to um, organize or um, invest within decision making and consensus making and building? What I would also say is potentially to work with the, your community uh, within the DAO, not necessarily only for proposal making or organization systems? How do you think about offline space? You know, a lot of things are actually run through social spaces, not necessarily about always committing to structured um, references. And the other thing that I wanted to speak to is about how we use the moon cycle. Um, I would also think about how nature works, you know, that there is often this time of harvesting, there's this time of hibernation, you know, there's a time of activation. You know, we, um, and I think this was actually very beautifully spoke about in this morning's keynotes, but we actually do work to systems, you know, um, that are within our ecologies and maybe trying to bring some of those systems into how you organize and how you participate together can also because we're affected by it right you know in summer we feel very different to in winter and i think taking into account the complexity of where you're organizing from is really important in successfully thinking about social technologies beautiful answer um, Monin, you are down there. We could take one question here and then was up in the front afterwards. I left you. Um, hi, my name is Halibi. I work for a public sector organization here in Skåne looking at innovation within the film and audiovisual industries. My question is also for Europe Penny. Um, I'm wondering. In your experience with the DAO, have you been able to engage any public sector organizations or stakeholders since there is a lot of public funding for the arts? Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of the whole um, premise <laughs> of the asylum stakeholders is specifically to hold those people accountable. Um, and actually, um, I borrowed this idea uh, from speaking to this amazing organization that's um, active within the US called WAGE and um, speaking to Lisa who's been like infinitely putting energy and power into this organization over the years. Um, she kind of dropped to me that it's about holding people accountable but through subtle ways and systems. So, you know, what I think about through DAOs is they're not perfect. There's a little dirty edges, there's grimy parts of them as well. And I may be a bit of a grimy thinker because I think that, you know, at this point, I cannot be utopic. I have to also sort of work at times within potentially things that my earlier self would reject. And so, the way Black Swan works is that basically those public organizations can actually advertise or um, 
lay claim to the fact that they're involved with this DAO, which means that they're signaling social, ethical, and political responsibilities to the scene, and also that they're signaling to each other who's actually interested in those systems. And what is also really important in terms of Black Swan specifically as a DAO is that um, within particularly public um, grant systems and public resources, quite often the people who are deciding what those resources and who's given them actually don't often interface with contemporary, emerging, new, radical forms of art making. It's not really on their... Um, landscape um, or on their horizon. And so often those most radical projects, they don't actually get funded until, as I said before, they get skimmed off the top. So this was also something that I specifically went to those institutions and explained that actually the people who are present, these new emerging generations, you're not actually interfacing or connecting to them, but you could if you would work through this DAO, and also then there was kind of links. So you have to, I think, um, show the positive sides. And speaking of the positive sides and the griminess of that, what I also want to say is that, you know, as well, that can be social signaling, which isn't necessarily a change of thinking. Um, and also what it does is it also allows the, particularly, let's say, in Berlin, because that's where this is positioned, it actually will create a stronger, um, more diverse system within the arts, which inevitably will create a stronger market for Berlin artists, you know, because I do think that art is part of the market. And so there is like this kind of, yeah, weighing up and down of those things. Cool, thank you. I think we have a question down here in the front. Hi, I'm Julie, and I'm a designer, interaction designer by training. I was just wondering, I can tell that you're all Ethereum people. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of the holy trinity of blockchains, where you talk about security, scalability, and decentralization, now with Ethereum's move away from proof of work, it seems like they're actually jeopardizing security to cater to the need for scalability, right? And they seem also to steer away from decentralization in the likes towards centralization with the Ethereum alliance as well, right? In opposition, you have Bitcoin that actually just solely focuses on security and decentralization, which is the first time in the history of society we've actually seen those two combined into a monetary system and a store of value. So my question is, there seems to be a risk with Ethereum, for instance, and crypto blockchains. For me, there's Bitcoin, and then there's crypto blockchains. There seems to be a risk that we can see a rise of new monopolies on the likes of Ethereum, and there could also be a complete rock pool of the whole foundation, right? Whereas Bitcoin has established as a protocol, as a layer one, where on layer two have built the likes of Lightning Network that can then scale the velocity and speed of transaction. So is that a concern of yours in your work, in your art, in your research, perhaps even in your, in your conviction and where you've sort of placed your focus, which is Ethereum? Um, I, I'm not actually sure that it's a solving um, that, it, that, that it's uh, in terms of scalability does anything different. I think it has the same problems of scalability after proof of uh, stake, actually. But it, it is an interesting point that 
that uh, moving from proof of work to proof of stake, you might have whales getting more power in the sense that they just have a lot of money that they stake and then they can sort of trick. But I still think that personally that the, the market cap total of Ethereum is so large now that you'd, you'd, you'd have to have so much money, I guess, to have any kind of um, uh, wrong influence on, on how the process works. At least that's how I understand it. I, th <laughs> I think for me, the question is not so much how things fail, but how they recover. Um, and I see a lot of good recoveries in society more broadly when it comes to monetary systems and financial systems. Uh, there's lots of failure as well, but I think the recoveries work better. Whereas when crypto crashes, when there's a new vulnerability, when there is a real attack, um, it's really just gone. You know, it's done. <laughs> uh, and that's more concerning for me. I, it's, it is good to remember, you know, if you're looking at all the transaction volume across crypto, a significant portion, maybe a third of it, is already on proof-of-stake networks. So I think practically there should be some, you know, resting of concerns for now about whether that really works or not. Um, theoretically, yeah, you're right. You know, the, the theoretical justification or theoretical guarantee is not there as much. Um, but yeah, my concern is a little bit less about whether it's theoretically going to work or even whether it's practically going to work, but more like what happens when it fails. You know, all the people who are going to lose their money if there is a failure, like there's no protections there. So that's my bigger concern. Thank you. I, I, you, I will, so I, I said I will <laughs> leave you with more questions and this is where I'm going to hold up to that promise because we are ending with time now.